0: You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On The Money.
1: Well, welcome everybody. Happy Tuesday, I guess. This is Paul Rudy's On The Money radio show and the two, the two reliable soldiers Hi. are here. Dr. Fred Gertz is here with me. And I know David's calling in. I'll get David on the line here. I think I just pressed this twice, as they tell me. David, are you there?
0: Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Can you
1: hear me okay? Yep, carry just fine. Again, this is Perfect. Paul Rudy's on the money radio show. I'm here, as I said, with Dr. Fred Gertz. Of all the days I've ever wanted Dr. Fred Gertz on my <laughs> show to bail me out, it's today. <laughs> and uh you can so <laughs> I got trying to get back on track here. Sorry about that. Uh, You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at WDWS. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. That means the last four weeks is included in that statement. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. We don't have the uh, guys putting in our Facebook Live, so we don't have that today. Well, Fred, obviously there's no shortage of things to worry about. Um, Easy to be pessimistic, probably for people. I mean, throw a rock, you hit a problem. Right. Uh, You and I had a a chance to chat before the show. (laughs) I think I (laughs) relayed some of my concerns. I'm an incurable optimist, uh, so I've been told. uh, You might even have been surprised by some of my questions, but at first blush, so now we have and again, I'm going kind of off script here, which I think is fine. Um, so we have this state, a number of states, significant states, when you think of New York, Ohio, Illinois, California, uh, basically everybody's shut in and businesses shut down. How long can we go like that? From any, this trade-off, you were talking about the trade-offs we have to make as policy makers and right. you know, as, as leaders. Um, there's this debate ongoing debate of you know w- you know is the cure worse right. than the the virus right. itself and i guess that's just really ultimately explains the trade off between healthcare and economic care right
2: and there's always the saying that uh this time is different and it is different but uh so there's a saying that uh, this time is different about every uh situation that faces us and it is different in the sense that uh The uh, shock comes from a different place and uh, occurred very quickly. But I think the uh, long-term kind of uh, of prognosis is probably the same, and that is to uh, stick with it. But I think things have have really changed, and this is kind of a a, a self-interest sort of thing about economics. And economics doesn't have the answer here, but I think economics has a way of thinking about Situations like this, and the the way econo- uh, economists think is in terms of uh, of trade-offs, opportunity costs, and not on a one-dimensional sort of thing or, or way of thinking. So I think what has happened so far has been somewhat one-dimensional, where the only thing we've been worried about is the potential um, spread of the coronavirus, and not not thought about the cost. And the uh, the problem is we don't really know the costs, and we don't know also the uh, uh, the virulence of the of the spread but I think the last few days people have started thinking well uh, we can do this for a week or two but people now are talking about uh, three months six months a year and obviously we can't do that uh, the economy is not uh, insignificant in that sense and things are closing down and it's, it's not possible just to say well every employer should go ahead and pay their employees because they don't have the wherewithal to do that so I think at some point uh, probably fairly soon we're going to have to think about making some uh, choices and, and the choice I think will start will be to start up in a in a limited way and, and not uh, stay down and kind of a, stay in a, a total lockdown the way we are now and again uh, th- there's no denying the uh, potential severity of the, of the coronavirus but looking back uh, almost every previous uh, situation like this has resolved in uh, probably much much greater damage in terms of deaths but the effect on the economy was probably minor so i think that if we can get back to not normal but back to uh a, a, a operating at, at least a reasonable level in the next few weeks we probably can avoid a, a, a catastrophic downturn i think there's no way of, of not avoiding a, a, a mini recession at this point and probably a, a, a fairly severe recession but that's Really, not the point. We can we can handle that. We can't handle uh, a kind of uh, implosion that would result if we continue, uh, you know, month after right. month after month. The other thing, which I think, there's also been a kind of of uh, magical thinking uh, at a lot of different levels, including the highest level, that somehow there's a magic bullet around. If we can only get a test, if we can uh, we can use some kind of uh, pre-existing drug and solve the problem. Uh, we can uh, develop an inoculation for this well we may be able to do that but it's not going to happen in the next two or three weeks if we wait around to come up with a a way of inoculating for the coronavirus it may be too late to save the uh, vitality of the economy so uh, so again I think we have to we're gonna have to start making some choices
1: yeah those are gonna be tough choices and you know you're kind of you're you're darned if you do darned if you aren't as a policymaker and you know like you were saying earlier it's kind of as a politician it's easier to probably overreact, and I'm not I'm not saying they're overreacting. Yeah, there's, there's
2: an asymmetry. Uh, first of all, uh, we know from investing, most people are risk-averse, so you're going to err on the side of uh, maybe being too cautious. But in addition to that, there's kind of a, a political calculus that if you're a politician and you don't do anything and uh, th- things get bad, you're going to be blamed if you take fairly uh, dramatic, drastic action and nothing happens. The economy, the, the the virus doesn't spread. You can say, well, the reason it didn't spread is because I took that action. So you're kind of covered on both ways. If you if you take the dramatic action, if you don't, you have you're leaving yourself open to some pr- pretty severe criticism.
1: It seems like the two issues that are that we need to address from an economic standpoint is first liquidity and then production. Um, liquidity uh, isn't that just basically saying we can't let companies that are solvent become insolvent right. because of liquidity issues and it certainly seems like the fed has thrown everything at that problem that it can and in my view is likely to work and they've
2: always, they've thrown it but they also are willing to throw unlimited amounts in addition to that so uh, unlike the uh, the situation in 2007 to 9 uh, i think the uh uh, Fed will, in fact, uh, deal with liquidity, but it, it's also a different, different in some ways, but similar to 2007 to 2009. The typical monetary policy is designed to lower interest rates, which will encourage people to invest, which will then uh, stimulate the economy. But this kind of thing is not going to stimulate the economy. It's going to keep the economy right. from collapsing. Right, and so. Given that uh, we're already close to zero interest rates, uh, the monetary policy will be stabilizing in a sense of uh, dealing with liquidity. It's not going to be expansive in terms of generating economic activity. So that leaves the side of fiscal policy, which is taxing and spending, and Congress has been – Dealing with that the last uh, few days, I think we're close to a resolution. That's not a magic solution, but it's kind of a,
1: a temporary expedient that may uh, uh, help us over the next uh, several months. And that deals with that production side or the supply side of the economy. We have a problem there, and it would strike me that we need, at some point, increased incentives to work, things like maybe the payroll tax for the rest of the year right. for both the employer and employee. I know yeah. that creates another problem with Social Security, but, you know, you take a 50000 a year, fifty to 60000 a year working family, and maybe that saves them close to $4,000 a year, and it saves the company 4000 a year. Right, and that wouldn't be there if the economy is shut down. The uh, Social Security
2: revenue right. is not coming in. It's not going to be there anyway, yeah. right? So, so I think that's a reasonable thing. But again, uh, uh, most people are not going to have all their problems solved by a $1,000 check in the mail. No. Uh, we have to have something happening in the economy to make that action work. You've got to have that
1: supply side going, because yeah. that's what employs people. Yeah. Ultimately. I, wouldn't it make sense to dramatically cut long-term capital gains right now as another incentive to invest? Uh, I think it would be not – it wouldn't be necessarily a bad idea. I don't think it's,
2: it's necessarily a, a, a game-changer in the sense that – I guess I, I'm, I'm – uh, Does it not, not, I'm not enamored by uh, by kind of ad hoc tax changes like like that. So I was just
1: wondering if that would give just additional incentive to invest. Maybe not. Maybe people well, are so panicked that they wouldn't.
2: It would certainly give people uh, an incentive to uh, uh, sell their stocks. Maybe and, and maybe buy, but the question is, would they invest or would they do something else with it? So again, I think that I'd put that down uh, pretty uh, far down the list of things to do immediately to. Try to stimulate things.
1: Isn't it, would it would it be true that when we look at past recessions and declines, a lot of them are engineered by bad policy, but this is kind of the first one that we've ever intentionally, you know, where the government intentionally shut down the economy. It's not a total shutdown, yeah. so I don't want to exaggerate, but I'm just yeah. using well, it. Well, uh,
2: usually uh, something dramatic like this uh, has a, a countervailing effect. For, so, for example, uh, World War II, yeah. we had all kinds of things uh, being shut down, but we also had all th- kind of things uh, opening up in terms of war production, people drafted into the, the military. So most uh, uh, catastrophic situations in the past have not been just a shutdown with nothing happening. You have a uh, a flood or a uh, hurricane, uh, there's a lot of damage, but there's also a lot of rebuilding afterwards. So th- this is different. Also, the, sudden- the suddenness of it is different. Uh, we didn't know exactly what was happening, but in 2007 to 2009, uh, the year before the uh, the panic in, in uh, September of 2008, we had uh, major banks failing, right. uh, uh, businesses being bailed out, uh, all kinds of uh, signs that things weren't quite right. But uh, as I said last month, uh, February was actually a very good month in right. terms of the Illinois economy and in terms of the national economy. So we went from a, a fairly, uh, uh, vibrant situation where, uh, you know, I look at uh, forecasts, no one was forecasting a, a recession in right. 2020. And, and just in a matter of days, we went from uh, kind of guarded optimism to uh, almost a, a panic situation. So again, we didn't have time to adjust. Generally, if you have a recession, it ripples through the economy. Maybe there, uh, people don't buy as many cars, and some right. people are laid off, they don't buy as much. And over a period of months, uh, things start to mount
1: but here it was uh going from full speed to uh virtually zero almost immediately so we kind of have the opposite problem today in 2008 we basically had a solvency issue in the banking system that's kind of spilled into the economy and poisoned right. the econ- economic well and now we basically have the opposite we have the real economy shutting slowing right. down and that's you know. Yeah. Causing a bank, potentially yeah. causing but there, there are some similarities issues.
2: though, and again, uh, I'm not in, uh, particularly happy about bailouts. But uh, in both cases, you, uh, the, the question was, do you want to help businesses? And I, I, again, I'm not uh, happy about helping them directly. But uh, often, uh, keeping businesses going is also going to keep employment going, and you can't simply pass a mandate saying. Uh, uh, shut down and pay all your employees right. forever uh, and give them unlimited sick leave. That's a nice uh, idea, but it's not going to work
1: because uh, companies like people are, are not uh, They can't to print do money that indefinitely. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the government can order you to boil water at 80 degrees, but it doesn't mean you yeah. can do it. I mean, right. So I guess they can order whatever they want. It seems to me, in a nutshell, what the Federal Reserve, what they're trying to do and attempting to do right now is basically buy the economy some time. Right. Uh, by, you know, pretty much acting as the lender of last resort, pumping liquidity into the system, keeping the gears from being, you know, sand getting in the gears in right. that credit markets, especially very critical. Right. And it, it also
2: is different because they're not addressing a, a financial collapse the way they were in 2007, 2009. They're trying to stop it ahead of time. So, again, uh, I think they're willing to... Uh, Go just as uh, as far as necessary to do that, but that's not going to solve. It's going to keep us from maybe falling um, uh, more deeply, but it's not going to gives us some time. It's gonna, I'm not going to change things around unless we eventually start to make some decisions. and the And the only decision that we have to make is: Are we willing to put up with, uh, uh, accept some maybe? potentially higher rates of, uh, of disease spread in order to get the economy going. And, again, if you're a one-dimensional thinker, you say, well, no, uh, uh, human life is the most important thing there is. Uh, we'll do anything to, to stop that. But, again, uh, someone called in earlier this morning and said, well, uh, well we have 30,000 people are killed on the roads every, every year in the United States. Actually, 170,000. I looked it up. Not, 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 not an article I read. Okay, anyway, sometimes it. it was on the internet,
1: Fred. It had to be true. <laughs>
2: but anyway, there there are tens of thousands of people killed every year on the roads. You can say, well, how can we allow that to happen? Well, we allow it to happen because people want to be mobile. We want to have our goods shipped. We want to be able to go one place to another, and we're willing to pay the cost. Now, it's not like we're routing up, you know, thirty thousand people and executing them. It's right. it's, a, it's a higher probability. Uh, being in an accident and society is willing to accept that and I think at some point we're going to have to think about the same sort of thing. Are we willing to accept maybe a slightly higher uh, rate of spread of the disease in order to uh, keep the economy going? And I think those are reasonable questions. I don't. Uh, the, the problem now is is more difficult because you don't have the information. We don't know exactly what's going to happen with the spread of the virus and again I think most people think it's going to just take off and go on forever, which is not the case uh I'm not an epidemiologist, but uh, people make adjustments so again you know if if the first week the uh, number of cases double and you do that sure yeah, and that week after week after week, and eventually everyone yeah. has it and again, same thing was true like in the in the sixties and seventies we we're going to run out of everything in the economy because we we're using steel and using right. oil and so on, and if we kept at that rate forever. Uh, we'd eventually run out. Well, two things happened. We didn't use as much, and and the second thing is we uh, made adjustments. We found ways to produce more. So here there'll be adjustments made in terms of people's behavior, in terms of uh, ways to treat the the spread of the virus, things of that sort. So I think that uh, those things have to come. Now, maybe a two-week pause or a three-week pause to kind of uh, get ourselves together and decide what to do may be useful, but uh, again, we, we're going to have to make some choices.
1: And and you, do you think that's inevitable that those choices are going to be made? I mean, we can't just put our heads in the sand. At some point, no. somebody's got to raise the issue. Right. Because we're going to make a choice one way or another. If, and, we, if we don't change anything, we've made a choice. And if right, we do and people, I, I think
2: people are going to, maybe uh, wisely or unwisely, they're, they're going to uh, say, I've been sitting at home for X number of days. I feel fine. Everyone around me feels fine. Uh, why are we doing this? Well, we know why they're doing it, but people are not going to accept, uh, uh, you know, like an indefinite uh, semi-quarantine. The, the, so we're not we're not on a uh, cruise ship where we can't right. get off. People can can do things. So I think that, again, uh, we're going to have to make some decisions now. Again, they may be right. They may be wrong. Maybe this is the uh, a virus like unlike anything else, and it'll be much worse. But that's probably not the case. So so again. It's not a costless decision. We have to take some risk. And, again, uh, I don't know exactly what the probabilities are, but we we have to think about those questions.
1: And it's the same thing with investing. I tell clients, you never eliminate risk. We're just trading risks, one risk for another. We're always shifting risk and accepting one and foregoing another. And, you know, we all collectively, 7 billion minds seem to make the system work. Isn't that ingenuity of the human spirit? Especially, and I'm I'm, part of me wants to say the American spirit, but I think it's probably the human spirit would be more accurate. I I think that does get underestimated, right? How quickly uh, the brains of this country and these these wonderfully gifted people come up with changes that we hadn't even thought of, right? And we didn't see coming any more than the virus.
2: Yeah, and also uh, the fact that uh, markets process information. Very really quickly, it's not saying they process it perfectly. Right. I mean, two weeks ago, uh, we were talking about uh, whether or not we would get down to the twenty percent bear market ratio, right. right. and I thought at that time that the market is. Uh, I looked at both sides, and we were kind of in a in a equilibrium where the the downside and the upside were sort of balanced at that point. And obviously, uh, I was wrong. The market was wrong. And the, the, the we new information
1: more. comes out, though, right?
2: Right, right? I mean, you know, is the and the information is. Asymmetrical. Uh, you don't get, uh, you know, you don't get like eleven and a half million Illinoisans don't have the virus. Right. Uh, you have a uh, right. hundred have it. Right. So again, you you, uh, uh, you get bombarded one side and, and probably not the other. So again, uh, I'm not saying uh, uh, being Pollyannish and saying let's sure. let's go ahead and pretend like nothing's happened, but we have to we do have to make some. Uh, some changes. I think those.
1: I think those changes and decisions are coming, and I think they're coming sooner than people think. And the trade-offs are going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, I saw for a, 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 lot per, of people. a person last night who's a, uh, a politician
2: in Texas, and he was uh, saying, "I'm a, a high risk person in the age bracket that's most likely so, to yeah. be uh, damaged. Uh, I'm willing to take the risk in order to." Uh, uh, you know, promote the the economy in the future for my children, my grandchildren. So that's not an unreasonable sort of thing.
1: Well, a lot of the, the, the common theme I'm reading, Fred, is, you know, we're, of course with the health crisis we're we're worried about human life, yeah. but if we let the economy get too sour and go too dark, that brings, that, that kills people too. With, through right. suicide, uh, you get more divorce rates. I mean, yeah. a, a, a poor economy also does Damage as well. And that's part of that trade off, isn't it? Right.
2: And also, uh, for many people, uh, it's a, a, a very worrying sort of thing to have your assets go down so significantly. But there are other people who are not getting their paycheck and they're not worried about their assets because they don't have any. And they have to worry about how I'm going to pay my rent next week, how, how I'm going to uh, buy groceries. And those things, again, the government can step in temporarily, but they can't do that forever.
1: And I think when it comes to people's investments, because, you know, a lot of what we talk about on the show is a lot of retirement-oriented, but, you know, it's an open game. But uh, I think my sense is, just from the reaction of people I talk to, is 2008-2009 did a pretty good job of desensitizing people, uh, of panicking Uh. uh, and selling. I'm talking about everyday people, not not the crazy kooks on Wall Street that are just deleveraging and... You know, degrossing and just you know they yeah. they just got over their skis. Uh, the the bread and butter investor worried but not panicking. Now right. maybe that's going to come, but I would say compared to two thousand eight two thousand nine, this is a not even a one on the scale of one to ten of fear. And in two thousand eight two thousand nine, I spent every hour of every day talking yeah. clients off the ledge. And also, I think you have to uh, place us at a point in time.
2: Uh, we're not in uh, 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 June of two thousand nine when the market started coming back. We're in uh, October, November, December of uh, yeah. two thousand eight, kind of the depth of the of the decline and and no light at the end of the tunnel at that point. So I think right now uh, I, I hope that in you know two years, five years, ten years we'll look back and say, well, in in the spring of uh, two thousand twenty things turned around and the economy kind of started growing. But we don't know that right now. So there is going to be a lot of of angst and uh, and uncertainty.
1: Of course, and, and but we can draw certain conclusions. We don't want to go too far, because as we say, you know, in yeah. the front of the show, past performance is not a guarantee of future results. But if you look at past periods and you look at forward data from, for instance, stock returns, yeah. um, you know, the, the, they're always pretty sizable returns given enough time, yeah. you know, more, maybe more than one year. But if you start looking at three and five years, you're looking at typically double digit returns from there. Right, and, yeah. and also uh,
2: again, it's, it's too late to do it now. But uh, up until about uh, six weeks ago, I kept asking myself, "Why am I rebalancing? I'm I'm leaving all this uh, uh, potential gains, uh, giving right. uh, giving them up, and uh, and uh, moving from stocks into into bonds or fixed income." And so I was kind of regretting my choices the last. Uh, Uh, 18 months or so now now I'm asking myself
1: why didn't I do more of it so I've (laughs) lived that uh, and and the boys can attest to this David probably got tired of hearing it and I'm not even sure David agrees completely with my theory of tinkering with allocation now we don't do it just to do it but when we start out on a plan with a client we say well you know you can spend six thousand a month for the rest of your life plus an inflation number and we just get decent returns for two or three years. Just decent, not 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 even average returns, just yeah. you know, respectable. Uh it's real easy then and it's typical for a plan to become what we call overfunded, which mm-hmm. means wow, we we basically base how much you can spend on a disastrous scenario, worse than what we're looking at here today in the stock market. And because we've had just halfway decent returns, your plan's overfunded. Well, what can we do? Well, one of the things we can do is instead of spending 6,000 a month, you can now spend Seven. I'm just kind of exaggerating these numbers a Good. little bit, but probably not too much. Um, and then the other thing we can do, almost always in those cases when we have a plan that we're operating from, is we can reduce uncertainty, which just means we don't have to be 60% stocks anymore. We can go down to 50 or 40 And client after client, not 100% of them, but pretty much bought in. They did it reluctantly over the last year, year and a half. And for a while, I look kind of foolish. And of course, they always want to know, well, why are you afraid of something? Like, no, I have no forecast. Yeah. I have no feeling about this. I have no theories about this. I'm just saying, when you have the option to live the life you want to live with less uncertainty, you exercise that option. And then you hear, well, but I have to pay taxes. Sorry, uh, you know, I've had CPAs tell me how stupid I was in in, in past years, and maybe they're right overall. Yeah. Uh, tell me well, that's a mistake because the taxes that they pay now is forever gone and they can't and I'm like, that's not the point. We have to live in the real world. And to let a client absorb more uncertainty than's necessary, unless they deliberately want to do that, is it would be not a good idea. And suddenly, you know, uh it probably seems much more sensible. And all along, like you, Fred, we've been rebalancing, you know, each year, sometimes a couple of times a year. I know the guys have been rebalancing our clients' accounts. We always ask for forgiveness after, because if we called okay. them, they'd say, well, I don't want to do that, yeah. which is w- why we exist, because yeah. we're countercultural in that way. We have to do the things that the clients, most right. of them, couldn't wouldn't do themselves intuitively. So, Yeah, you can't do it after the fact.
2: I mean, uh, your rebalancing has been imposed on you now. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> okay. But the point is, if you have the option to reduce uncertainty, yeah. you exercise it, because then once the bad event happens, and yeah. you know, it's inevitable that it will, that option's off the table. Yeah. So, There's also for people
2: have been around forever like uh like me, there's kind of a sticker shock. I I can remember in the seventies where uh, a ten point uh rise or fall and Dow, Dow Jones <laughs> was a big deal and then hundred was a big deal and then I remember I was going someplace in uh the the fall of two thousand eight and the stock market fell by uh, seven hundred points while yeah. I was on the on the on the airplane and now uh seven hundred looks like a an average. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I think that's one of the things I've noticed uh, in my nearly four decades of doing this is, at first there's this real high level of shock, both the news mm-hmm. about the virus, or whatever the event, the apocalypse du jour is, uh, maybe it's the shock over people looking at their investment portfolios mm-hmm. declining. But then what happens, and, and when I tell people this, they don't believe me, because I tell them ahead of time, we become less shocked as no. time goes on. Do, do, you, do you find that that's true as a human condition? I thought it's
2: true for me, and again, uh we have various ways of uh, of of uh kind of framing it to make it less painful so one w- one of the ways i frame it is that uh when i lose money in my 40, 403b account i say uh, uh, 30% of that is a loss to the government yeah. so, and, and, because I, I don't have to pay tax on the right. money i lost I, I, that's just kind of a, a way of making the pain uh less painful the other thing i do which is uh against the uh the advice of a lot of people is, is that only look at your uh, portfolio once a quarter or once a month or something of that sort. I actually like to embrace the pain and and see how bad it is. And, and it's usually not as bad as I thought. And then at that point, you have kind of a new floor to look to. And if it starts going up, you feel a little bit better. But that's all psychological.
1: Yeah, I remember when I, you know, I was much younger, Fred. I think I was 40. I did mixed, <laughs> ma- trained in mixed martial arts. Yeah. And I was never a tough guy. I'm not a tough guy today, but. I toughened up but yeah. i just remember the first time i got clocked uh and it was gloves i yeah. mean it was not you know open fist i have some sense about me yeah uh it was a lot different than the 10th time yeah. you know and, <laughs> right. and that's kind of my point about it just seems like humans were wired i paint with a much broader brush than yeah. you fred you only would talk about how things relate to you i yeah. i paint with broad human brushes um i think that's something that people will find happens too um so and david we want to talk a little bit about okay uh how do we make anything good out of this if we have the view if we have a lifetime view that this too shall pass it probably is going to get worse before it gets better i think we always have to resign ourselves and david can tell anybody that i'm always bad-mouthing and say look it's probably going to get worse before it gets better but it will get better and as long as we have that view then you have to look at all right what is a Uh, a 30 35 percent decline in the stock market portion of my portfolio mean well means rebalancing is one thing and people should be actively looking at that Uh, you can look at tax loss harvesting David might want to talk a little about that in a minute Um, we're looking at Roth conversions it's a good time when markets are down if you're thinking about doing a Roth conversion anyway it's it's more appealing when prices are down And then for people that maybe have been sitting a little fearful over the last few years waiting for something like today, and so maybe their allocation is a little lighter than it ought to be over their lifetime, I'm not talking about going in and out, these are certainly opportunities to increase those allocations. And uh, then, you know, the other thing is for people that are fortunate enough to have additional monies to invest, obviously that's a no-brainer. But I have found that when, when everybody says, I'm waiting for a pullback mm-hmm. to add some money to it when the pullback shows up, it doesn't quite look the same and feel yeah. the same as the past ones did <laughs> right. on a chart. Yeah. Um, David, one of the things I want to talk a little bit about tax loss, to, tax loss harvesting. Just briefly, kind of what you've been doing and the guys have been doing uh, at Rudy
0: Wealth. Sure. So conceptually, tax loss harvesting is a way to what's called r- realize losses so that you can use them to offset future capital gains and even up to $3,000 of ordinary income on your tax return each year. If you have more losses than you have gains in a year. Um, and the way you go about doing that is you have to sell the holdings in your portfolio that have declined in value. And this only works in in taxable brokerage accounts. Um, I should go without saying, but I, I just want to clarify there. Um, So what you do is you sell those. So you'd say, well, I don't wanna sell while the market's down, that's that's dumb, why would anyone do that? Well, to avoid being out of the market and technically like lowering your stock allocation, you wanna buy back securities that are very, very similar to what you sold. Um, The only thing you have to be careful of is you can't buy back the exact same security or securities that are what are considered substantially identical. Now, the tricky part with substantially identical is when you're using things like ETFs and mutual funds, it gets a little bit murky as far as, you know, well, is this index fund attracts a different index than this one, but they're kind of like their correlations, you know, 0.99 is that substantially identical. So you have to be careful there. Um, it seems like it's not police that close to me. So I think there is a certain amount of judgment just at the, mm-hmm. the Basic level, make sure you don't buy back the exact same security and then probably run it by a CPA before you do any of this. Um, But you're going to buy that basically similar, I call it like a replacement fund or replacement security back so that you're not out of the market. And then after 30 days go by, you can swap back into what you owned in the first place if you want to, um, because that's basically at that point, the wash sale period would be over. Um, and the wash sale period is that rule that basically you can't buy back the same security or a substantially identical security within 30 days. Um, so it's a little bit technical but
1: But why why is do why the
0: then why why do you do
1: it? Just kind of if we can cut to the chase a little bit on that. What's the point? Yeah, uh, so it doesn't intuitively it doesn't sound appealing to harvest losses.
0: Yeah, so if you don't do it then you'll not You'll have what are called unrealized losses because the government basically says, and it's the same thing with capital gains, until you've actually sold that security, you haven't locked in a gain or a loss. So to be able to actually realize these losses so that you can, quote, use them in the future to offset future capital gains and even some ordinary income year to year, um, you have to realize them. So that's the only way to do that. Um, so sh- long story short, it's gonna reduce your tax bill in the short run. Now it does step down your cost basis, which is what basically that they say, that- that's kind of how they track what you bought a security for and how they determine capital gains and losses going forward based on uh, how the cost basis differs from the current value. And so it eventually you kind of recapture that capital gain unless you hold it until you die and then you just step up and cost basis. Um, so it's more about tax deferral than anything because eventually you do have to pay taxes. So I do think some people overstate the benefits where they just look at, hey, I realized this amount of losses and my capital gains rate is 15%. So I'm going to multiply the losses by that and that's my benefit. Well, not really, because you're going to have those capital gains at some point. But I, I think a, a big portion of the benefit does come from the fact that you can use a few thousand dollars per year to offset ordinary income, which is taxed at a higher rate than capital gains. Okay. So, especially for you know, if you're someone who's in the highest marginal tax brackets, you know, even though it's a small dollar amount for people like that, it's still beneficial.
1: Okay, that, you know, and so that's just one of the things we're doing, and that's you know, you, you look at every situation. You say, is there are there a few pennies or a few dollars yeah. to pick up? You don't ignore them. You're there. There are always things to do. The one thing you don't want to do is just based on current news, radically change your asset allocation. Yeah. Now, if you found out, if you woke up, you know, a couple of mornings ago, and said, you know what, I think my asset allocation really isn't aligned with my lifetime ability to handle it. Sometimes then you have to reduce your equity exposure, even after it's down 30% in order to get you there so that you can sleep the rest of your life. You try to avoid that and be realistic on the front end when you're creating a plan, but that does happen. And so we have to say, welcome to the human race. It's not foolish to reduce your equity allocation permanently uh, as long as you understand the ramifications and is gonna have what kind of impact it has on your life because You know, otherwise you may end up panicking and capitulating when it Uh, gets much worse. This is a a question to
2: uh, David. I I think I know the answer, but I'm not sure. I think it's no longer possible to recalculate uh, Roth conversions, is it? So in the old days, you could, uh, if you moved it in in January and you had a huge tax bill, you could go go back back out. But I don't think you can do that anymore. So if people did make conversions, they may be surprised that uh, uh, their, their taxes are going to be based on the value when they converted, not not on what it's worth when you exactly. pay your taxes.
0: You guys yeah, com- it's recharacterization. re-characterization. You oh, go ahead, Dave. Sorry. I was going to say you can't recharacterize anymore. So I think you just have to be more cautious. Before, what people would do sometimes is purposely overshoot, and then recharacterize to the exact, you know, penny or dollar um, to make sure they filled an exact, you know, exactly to the top of a certain tax bracket. Now you kind of have to do some estimation and say, okay, well, I don't really want to go above this tax bracket. So, based on all my estimates for my income this year, here's how much I think I should convert. And you're just realistically, you're you're not going to hit it right on the head because there's uncertainty around certain sources of income. You know, especially for people with like taxable investment accounts and stuff like that.
1: Okay, Um, one of the things, Dave, I want to
0: go ahead. I was gonna say with any tax stuff, like tax loss harvesting especially, because it's easy to kind of mess that up, um, raw conversions, I think it's really important to run those by your CPA. Don't just listen to our radio show and and go out and try to do them on your own without either doing a lot of research, or like I said, I, I highly recommend running it by a CPA
1: first. Okay, Dave, I'd like to move to, because I, I asked Daniel and you to put together kind of a sample plan, assuming someone retired at the beginning of this year, of what that might look like. Again, I don't want anybody to draw too many conclusions from this. This is just kind of an example of how a, pl- a good planning methodology uh, works right on the front end of exactly what you would fear on the at the beginning of retirement. Can you address that a little bit?
0: Yeah, for sure. So Daniel actually put this together, and I will say the specifics are going to vary depending on the client's specific financial situation. Um, But basically what he did is he looked at, okay, the way that we build plans is we're building in our financial planning software, and it gives us this measure called probability of success. And we like to keep that within a certain range. So that's basically what tells us when adjustments are needed. So if it goes below a certain threshold, that is when we consider the plan underfunded and we might need to cut spending. If it goes above a certain threshold, we might consider it overfunded and be able to increase spending or do one of the other adjustments you mentioned earlier. Um, So what we like to do is start really on the high side. So we're pretty darn conservative, but not just outrageously conservative, because you don't want to also just unnecessarily sacrifice a client's lifestyle. Um, But what we've seen, just anecdotally, and when we built this plan just using our methodology, was, let's see, in a percentage basis, it was a really modest spending cut. So the plan had retirement spending starting out of $53,000 per year.
1: How how much and, asset? And if uh, we, beginning portfolio value, just to give people a concept.
0: Sure. So we used a beginning portfolio value of a half a million dollars. Um, I think see. you added Social Security we, in. Yep. Social Security of $36,132 per year uh spending inflation increase 2%. That does make a difference. Okay. Um and a 50% we use a 50% stock, 50% bond portfolio. And then what we did is we tested just how much the market has declined so far, just run it as if it was a a plan. So they're starting so, out
1: day one uh and you're saying, "Look, with your assets and your income stream, you can spend 53,000 a year." So that's kind of the baseline spending.
0: Yep. Okay. And It depends where you want to kind of bring the plan back up to, Um, but what I would do, like if I was doing a plan right now, I would have cut that person spending about two thousand dollars per year to get them back kind of in the middle of, kind of where we like plans to be.
1: So Uh, you start out January first, you tell them fifty-three thousand on an annual basis, and now at the depths of so far where we are, you'd likely go back to that client and say, look, we'd have to. The plan is underfunded a bit. To get it back into the comfort zone, then we need to go from fifty-three thousand in spending to fifty-one thousand.
0: Exactly, and so, and then the other important point is: look, if the market falls substantially further from here, now I build in some buffer room for you know declines from here, so that hopefully we don't have to come back to them again. Yeah. But if it turns into something like a two thousand eight market decline, yeah, we might have to come back and, and reduce the spending a little bit more. Um, and I think more than anchoring to the numbers, I think you wanna look at this conceptually. It's, hey, look, the market's down you know, a little over 30%, but my spending didn't drop nearly that much. And that's because we started out conservative, and any good plan should start out relatively conservative because we know that declines like this will happen. We don't know what the cause is gonna be in advance, obviously, we're not gonna be able to tell you when they're gonna happen, but they're going to happen. And so because we know that, we need to build a plan that works, despite the temporary declines that come along, you know, every five to six years on average. So, because we start out conservative, the spending cuts that we make tend to be modest. Um, and, and then the other thing I want to mention here too is, we do this because it allows people to start out spending a little bit more. If you wanted to say, I want a plan where I have zero percent, we can't technically guarantee it or say zero, but. That basically has very, very little chance of any sort of decline in spending. I can build a plan like that, but you're going to start out spending less from the get-go. Yeah. So yeah. if you have, go ahead. Fred. If you have that flexibility and you're willing to cut your spending a little bit, we can start you out a little bit higher. If you don't, we're going to have to start you out at a lower spending rate from the get-go. You
2: know, people uh, always denigrate uh, Social Security, but this is a case where it's really a bulwark of your planning you have uh uh, if you converted the stream of income into uh, a value you probably have several hundred thousand dollars and if you add in medic medicare probably half a million dollars uh in a sense in the bank that's also secured. the government's going to keep doing that so for your example uh if the person is getting 36 from social security uh that's kind of a base you don't have to worry about now the problem is for Higher income people, uh, most of their base is not Social Security; it's more uh, investment income, which may be a more severe kind of test to them.
0: Yeah. So. Yep, and I so that was actually something I was going to mention here too. I'm sorry. I, the reason I, I met uh, the. Oh, go ahead. Oh, just,
2: sorry, I I stepped oh. on your lines.
0: <laughs> oh no, no, that's fine. Um, I was going to mention that is the reason this can vary a lot as far as absolute like spending numbers is because everyone differs in in how much of their income is coming from, like, guaranteed income sources. So, I have a, we have a client that we just got, you know, not too long ago. We fully invested them, um, really, it was like, right, basically right before this decline happened. But most, the vast majority of their income is coming from state pension. So, even right now, they they have, their plan hasn't required any spending decline, but if it got to that point it'd be a really small percentage of their overall spending because their portfolio already doesn't make up much of their spending but like you said for really really high income people who don't have pensions i think of like doctors for example like surgeons might fall into this the vast majority of money's coming from your portfolio you're going to be more sensitive to portfolio declines and more um likely to have a a larger magnitude of a a spending decline if you follow this type of process. Um, One of the things that some people will recommend, and I I think it makes sense objectively if you can psychologically kind of handle it, is people who have more of their income coming from guaranteed income sources can have a more aggressive investment portfolio because they can kind of put up with that fluctuation. People who get the vast majority of their income from their investment portfolio might want to lean towards a Lower stock, higher bonds allocation of their investment portfolio to smooth things out a little bit. Because the more, the more, the larger portion of your portfolio you have in stocks, the larger the magnitude of potential spending declines is going to be.
1: Okay, and how have your clients? We're really our clients. uh, I tend to be the senior advisor for all the clients, and then any one of the three guys. Uh, are going to be the associate advisor. Um, but you do a lot of the talking to, to quite a few of the clients. I've talked to several, but, uh, I've only had one that was particularly worried. And I think it goes back to my, I think 2008, 2009 desensitized people quite a bit, but you've had a number of conversations kind of, what are the flavors? What What are you telling people?
0: Well, I'd like to start off by trying to refocus them on the financial plan because I think at the end of the day, what people are worried about is not necessarily my portfolio is going down, it's, am I going to run out of money? And those things kind of go hand in hand, but not necessarily because as long as your plan, even with this portfolio decline still is, is expected to work, has a very high probability of success. You know, maybe we need to make some adjustments to get you back on track, but that at least helps provide some reassurance. No, you're not going to run out of money. So you can kind of ease your ease your mind in that regard. Um, From an investment standpoint, I just like to provide reassurance that, look, I can't tell you when things are going to get better. I can't tell you how they're going to get better. But I can only tell you that they will get better. And I guess, you know, I was reading an article that you had shared with me and I liked how he put, if you don't fundamentally believe that, you shouldn't be investing in the first place. Like, I think you have to have this fundamental belief that, look, we'll figure out whatever issues come along throughout, you know, our lifetimes and in the future and the market will go up over time. So any declines that come along will be temporary. So I think you need to have that belief. And once you have that belief, if you do believe it, it's just a matter of we just need to hang in there until it happens and not fall victim to trying to, time the market not trying to you know just panic and and bail out because those are the things that can derail your plan you know maybe your plans built to work but if you go to cash it probably won't so um that's that's kind of what i try to do
2: yeah david i was going to say i I talked to your father and said that you and your uh, younger associates now will have a story to tell you 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 actually have uh, gone through a crisis (laughs) as opposed to just uh observing it through the uh, rearview mirror
1: yeah no they maybe, yeah, maybe there's no referring to the comic books anymore yeah
0: yeah exactly maybe some gray hair too maybe it'll it'll cause some of that to pop in <laughs>
1: yeah. Fred that's Looks pretty good part. that's but, pretty good advice for a 29 year old right I mean, <laughs> spoken like a true father I guess right. yeah it's been challenging for people uh, again the, I guess the only surprise I've had is how few clients have called with any material con- concerns and. I'm not trying to be cute with that. That's just an observation. Of, you know, maybe it's because they know what we're going to say, so they probably go to pick up the phone and they go, "Oh, we know yeah. what he's going to say anyway." Uh, this too shall pass. But it all comes from, and I've been trying to stay in communication. And if you go to RudyWealth dot com, I've, I've, I think the boys and I have written some pretty, I think might be useful to some people. Uh, blogs addressing just kind of, you know, welcome to the human race and yeah. what you are feeling is normal. But I, I guess. You've lived long enough, Fred, I've lived long enough to know that, look, this isn't the first crisis, it won't be the last crisis, but like every other emergency in the past, we either fix it, and Americans love to fix things, or we learn to live with it, 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 and then it just fades, it fades into the the past. But
2: But right now, though, we're in an unsustainable situation, we have to uh, do something in the next few weeks, one way or another, so again, there's some big decisions yet to be made about... uh, redoing things and uh, opening it up maybe on a gradual basis I,
1: I i look for that to happen i look for that and then let's protect our most vulnerable people they're gonna have to yeah. be aggressively protected uh-huh. uh but maybe some um uh, you know a compromise uh and like you said yeah. a slower rollout to give people this confidence yeah. maybe it's even a psychological boost that okay this isn't forever well also i i mean uh we we seem to
2: uh dismiss the uh tens of thousands of flu deaths every year. I mean, you, every year, uh, uh, a huge number of people in absolute terms uh, die from uh, respiratory kinds of things, mostly old people. This is a same kind of thing, except uh, much bigger in kind. But again, uh, you have to look at the whole picture, not just the, uh, the, the one uh, little slice of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, I guess we don't know where it's going, but if you looked at the numbers today worldwide, Hmm. It hardly would show up, you know, in a graph compared to typical influenza around the globe. I'm not making light of it, and I'm not suggesting right. that's no, what it's, it's going a, to be. It's, it's the
2: potential. I think that we don't know about that. It, uh, I don't know the uh, uh, biology of it, but it, it, it must be more virulent or have more potential for spreading
1: than the typical flu. Yeah, I, it, it. You know, that seems to be the the big worry. That and it is. Am I missing something, Fred? But it, I'm just wondering. It appears to me that the Really, the main reason we do this is not necessarily to reduce the number of people that are probably ultimately going to get this. It's just the rollout of it, how many people, so that we don't, you know, overrun our hospital system. Is I that think so. sort of uh, what's going on? Uh,
2: probably, but I suspect now that uh, there are huge numbers of uh, unused beds in hospitals because they've gotten uh, deferred or, or uh, uh, canceled a lot of activity that would normally uh, occupy beds, and, and the wave hasn't arrived yet, so I'm not sure... Uh, how they're doing right now? I suspect the hospitals are probably under uh, uh, overstaffed as opposed to understaffed, at least in in this area.
1: And if we can trust the data out of China, uh, and, and probably can out of South Korea and, and some of the countries that have been faced fairly favorably, uh, still a lot of death, but they, you know they got it yeah. to, to flatten out the curve right. fairly reasonably quickly. Uh, and then I look at our U.S. health system; it's hard to, for me to believe that. Yeah. Our U.S. health system can't do at least as good as right. a, a horrible or at least right. a, and not as prepared society yeah. as the U.S. Now, South Korea had more testing. You know, it looks like right. that's where we're really. I'm not even sure. I
2: guess that, that puzzles me about testing. Uh, uh, you get tested and you say, okay, you have the virus. Go home and you'll be fine in a few days. Most people who have the virus are, are going to have a a fairly uh normal kind of recovery just like a regular flu so I guess knowing it has some value but in terms of treatment uh, it doesn't make a lot of difference but I guess I think the uh, spread is probably the more important thing about uh, knowing that you have it
1: yeah well you know as they say may we live in interesting times Uh, we got another minute here so I would just suggest to people that they try to best they can not panic you know if you can keep yourself from getting surprised maybe you don't panic I have offered on my commercial again, this isn't really a marketing ploy, but maybe it sort of is, is if people uh, are really feeling panicky about their finances and their investments and all that, ha- I'm happy to take a call at three five I'm not going to send you emails and start calling you and try to, I'm literally at this point, look, I'm 60 years old, I've made plenty of money, I got a nice company. If there's any way to return something back to the community, if people felt like they had an unbiased person that isn't going to try to, sell them something or sell their services yeah. and i oh, i can't prove that i won't do that but i promise you i right. won't so yeah right now though if you don't have a plan i think it might be good to uh,
2: just try kind of put it on hold for a while and then think about getting a plan pretty quickly once we I get back that, there. i think that's the want. lesson
1: in all this people with plans are much less rattled about this well thanks for listening we'll be back in two weeks paul rudy's on the money thanks dr fred gertz and certified financial planner david rudy
0: Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.